You go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to finish up this section of Scripture tonight. We're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 10 after we review a little bit. Well, um, I am a little bit behind the times and some of the, the cool things and the phrases that kids use these days. Apparently, cap isn't a hat that you wear anymore. But in my day, every once in a while, you had to have a DTR conversation. Had a DTR conversation. For instance, um, Kim and I had been seeing each other for about a week. And she called me and she said, I, I'm a little confused about our relationship. So DTR defined the relationship. She said, do you like me or do you like my roommate? And of course, obviously, I was kind and gracious and, and not sarcastic at all. And I, I might have said something. I'm like, well, let me see. I've, I've been hanging out with you every day, all day, and not your roommate. So you, you tell me. Um, <laughs> give, give a normal straight answer. It's amazing that she ever married me. All right. But I don't know if kids today... Uh, just pretend that they're, they're friends and not something else or whatever it is. Or if you ever have the, the DTR, the define the relationship talk. Today, we are going to define the relationship between faith and works. And you're like, whew, this is way less awkward. And that's the title of our lesson. Defining the relationship between faith and works. When you get to chapter 2... You see, first of all, in the first three verses, that Paul is describing our deadness. Describing our deadness. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, obviously, we know that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. But the truths and the timeless principles he's communicating translate to us as well. Every single person, they are born in their sin. They are sinners, dead in your trespasses and sins. And we know what can a dead person do? A dead person can do nothing. They can do nothing to save themselves or to change their state. He goes on to say, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Not only are you dead, you're doing the, the work of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You get the, a picture of the petty child that, that cries when he wants and, and screams when he wants, and he wants what he wants when he wants, and all of those things. And believer, that was us before Christ. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That is our deadness. Now, unbeliever, clearly this is still you. That describes you this very moment. But believer, what changed? Why are we no longer dead? Well, in verses 4 through 7, we began dissecting God's deliverance. Dissecting God's deliverance. And not in a gross, creepy way like you do in school with the, with the pigs and the frogs and the owl pellets, which is like owl throw up or whatever it is. You know, you ever have to do those weird things? Yeah. We are 
looking at and analyzing God's deliverance so that we may better understand why he would save us and how he saved us. It says why he saved us. It says, but God. What beautiful words. You're dead. But God. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Why did he save us? Because of his divine character. Because he is rich in mercy. He opens up the wallet of his mercy and the, the hundred dollar bills keep falling out. And he is also great in love. But we also noticed in verse 7 that he didn't save us just because of his divine character. He also saved us because of his divine will. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved us. He made us anew so that he could then show the world his work. That Christ lived a perfect life. That he died upon the cross. That he shed his blood to redeem a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. And as we actively go out and live the life that he has created us for. And as we display those good deeds. The world can see the goodness and the grace of God. And they'll want to be part of it too. I live my life in such a way so that men see my good deeds and glorify my Father who is in heaven. He saved the dead man so the dead man would live for him once he has been made alive. So others would come to know him. But how did he do it? How did he do it? Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. I'm not encouraging you to do this, but picture an animal that's dead. What can you do to make it alive? And I know this is already a really, really creepy illustration. I'm, you're getting sad as it is. There's nothing you can do. We were dead. But he acts upon us, says he made us alive together with Christ. Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. For those of us that are in Christ, it's like we, our old self was nailed to the cross with Christ. We died to the old self, and then we, we were raised anew. We were raised, or we were made alive together with him and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so we start to, to revel about the, the wonder and the beauty of what God did. He was so merciful. He was so loving. And he wanted to, to show his grace and his glory to the world that he sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life to be rejected, to be beaten, to be scorned, to be whipped, to be nailed, to be killed on a cross, and then raise him up anew. So that if we repent and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be like him. And the dead man is now a child of God. Ooh. Our position in Christ, apart from Christ, we are dead. In Christ, we rule and we reign with him. We are in his family. When you get to verse 8, we then see our title for today, how Paul is now defining the relationship between faith and works. Because we're looking at all of this and we're trying to figure this out, okay? Because when I tell someone that they need to be saved, I call them, there is a, you know, we talk about God, then we talk about man, 
Then we talk about Jesus. And if you, if you don't know that, then you're not going to do well at quiz one that's coming up. And then fourthly, what's the fourth one? There's a response. Well, okay, there's a response. Well, what's the response? To repent and believe. So I do the work of repentance? I do the work of belief? Well, no, you can't. Well, then how does it happen? Well, it's God. God, through His Spirit, calls you and draws you to Himself, and He gives you the heart of repentance, and He grants you the faith, and He draws you to Himself, and He saves you. And Paul wants to make this abundantly clear, if he hasn't already, that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot. But what does this dark, ignorant, corrupt world teach you? What does it teach you? Well, you can be saved just because of your parents are saved. And you need to go to church enough and then you're in. Or you need to give enough or you need to recycle enough or whatever it is, enough. You need to go to the priest enough. You need to confess enough. And you need to do enough good works. And, and it's kind of like a big old scale. And if the, if the good outweighs the bad, then you're in. You got to do enough good things to erase the bad things. Well, the reality is this. That's not how it works. One sin and you're out. But it's not that we just like, oh man, one sin, I'm out. I guess I lose. That's who you are. That's who you are apart from Christ. And one good deed doesn't erase a bad deed. It doesn't work like that. So there are four undeniable truths about salvation that we were going to look at tonight as Paul defines the relationship between faith and works. The first truth is salvation is through faith alone. Salvation is through faith alone. And when we, we get to verses like this, which you probably have memorized, or I really hope you have memorized. If you don't, you should memorize them. We kind of tune out and move on to the next thing. But these verses are so rich. They are so beautiful. For by grace. For by grace you have been saved. Now what, what is grace? What is grace? Grace is a beneficent disposition towards someone. It's favor. It's goodwill. It can be summarized as unmerited favor. Where are some of the, the places that we see grace in the Bible? I want you to go back to, to Genesis 6. Go to Genesis 6. Man was corrupt and wicked. Genesis 6, the Lord said in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word there, obviously it's, it's Hebrew word, favor. But that Hebrew word, when it's translated into Greek, also is, it's grace. It's essentially grace, the same idea. How in the world, out of all of these corrupt, wicked people, how did Noah find grace with God? How did he find favor with God? 
we like to think that it's because Noah was a good person. Guys, Noah was a good person because God visited him with his favor and grace. Noah listened and obeyed because God divinely acted upon Noah's heart to do it. And so Noah receives this favor, receives this grace, exhibits this favor, exhibits this grace, and Noah and his family will be saved and the rest of mankind will not be. By grace, Noah was saved. By grace, we are saved. For by grace, you have been saved. Have been saved. Now, it's really important that Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say you might have been saved. He says you have been saved. Present, active, indicative. It's not that you possibly could be saved. And why do I, why do I say it like that? If you're familiar at all with the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church, they require faith in Jesus, but then you're kind of in limbo. Because you might do something to lose that salvation. And if you don't go to confession to confess that sin, that sin may pull you down. Or you have the, the theology or the, the doctrine of limbo. That idea of like there's a place you didn't quite, you weren't quite good enough. Okay, you have Jesus, okay. But then you got to add your works to it. And your works were kind of meh. So you're here in the middle place. You're in limbo. You're in purgatory. And you got to work your way out of purgatory to get up into heaven. And if you don't, then that's kind of bad for you. Does that not sound weird? Okay. There are millions and millions and millions of Catholics. And those things aren't weird to them. They take grace, faith, and then they add works on top of it. It can't just be by grace. It can't just be by faith. It also has to be, it has to be faith plus works equals salvation. And Paul is saying, no. It is simply by grace you have been saved. And that word saved, it's important that you understand that it's a passive word. It's a passive word. You know, if, if we say that Jake hit Noah, right? Jake hit Noah. Jake is actively hitting Noah, okay? He's the one that's doing that action. But if we said Jake was, or Noah was hit by Jake, what's Noah doing there? He's receiving the action. And we, we should probably act, I'm, I don't think they're getting it. We probably should act, no, we're not going to act this out, all right? You have been saved. That means God saved you. You were here because, you know, Tom mentions this. We think of the, you're drowning in an ocean and someone throws you a life preserver and that life preserver is Jesus and you hop on in and they, they pull you to shore and woohoo, you're saved. All right? The reality is you're in the ocean and you're drowning and they ding you in the head with a life preserver and you go, hmm, and you keep sinking. And God reaches down and he rescues you. You have been saved. There are no works here. No works here. But how have you been saved? By grace through faith. Through faith. Is this consistent 
with the rest of Scripture? Is this what the rest of the Bible teaches? You better say yes. Go to Hebrews 11. Flip over to Hebrews 11, which you already know is the hall of faith, the chapter of faith. It's not just the church at Ephesus. It's not just us. It's believers of all time have been saved by grace through faith. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained, what? Approval. That's what it is. None of us are righteous. All of us are guilty in the courtroom of God's law. We need his righteousness. So Christ, when we believe in him, imputes that righteousness to us so that God now declares us righteous. He declares us innocent. How do you get it? It's through faith, and that's how you are approved. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So no one is arguing that faith isn't an element for the most part. What Paul is clarifying in, in Ephesians 2 is it is the only thing that is necessary. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So the object of faith must be in God and God's plan and his righteousness. You can't just have faith in whatever you want. It has to be faith in the one true God. And then you go on and on. Verse 7, by faith Noah. Verse 8, by faith Abraham. All right, on and on and on. And all of these examples of people that are saved by their faith. And each one of these people is what? Is flawed. Each one of these people, they are a sinner. And we even have accounts written in God's word of when they sin. Well, how did they get saved? They got saved by their faith in God in his plan and of salvation. So salvation is through faith alone. The second truth, salvation is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The same word is used when the wise men came and they presented gifts to baby Jesus. All right, baby Jesus uh, was, was given those things. You understand it at Christmas time and on your birthday, people give you gifts. Now, what did you do to earn those gifts? Nothing. They simply gave them to you. Salvation as a gift cannot then be earned. It cannot be worked for. If you work for something, it's no longer a gift. It's a what? It's a wage that you have earned. Right? It is a payment 
for the work that you have done, but a gift by definition is something that is given freely to you. The third truth that we're going to see, we saw salvation is through faith alone. Number two, salvation is a gift of God. And so if it's a, if it's a gift of God, there's, there's no works in this. Number three, salvation is not a boast of man. Is not a boast of man. And when you look at this phrase here, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The, the main emphasis of that phrase is the verb, may not boast. So no one may boast. We know the wages of sin, the earnings of sin, is death. But we do not earn our salvation or we would have a boast in it. We would have a say in it. Hey, look what I did. I saved myself. I contributed. The word boast means to take pride in something. When it comes to my personal salvation, I don't think about how good I am. I think back to verse 1. That I was dead, and that I was miserable, and that I was living for myself, and I was doing the work of Satan, and I was a child of wrath, and like Titus says, I was hateful and hating one another. I don't have a very good picture of myself, do I? No, it's a good thing. But God saved me. And him saving me is not something for me to boast about, but for me to boast about for him. God saved me. He rescued me. I want you to flip over to, to Daniel 4. We get a very good picture of what it means to boast in yourself. And then we see a correction to someone that boasts in himself. You're very familiar with Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4, we actually learn about Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. All right? It says, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live on the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me. To declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Who is, who is who's writing this part of scripture? Nebuchadnezzar. Alright. The dude that just built a giant golden statue and said, worship it or I'm going to kill you. He is now completely regenerated. And he is writing these words. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians and the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them and they could not make its interpretation known to me. Ah, oh, but finally Daniel came in before me whose name is Belteshazzar according to the name of my God and whose uh, spirit is the spirit of the holy gods and I related the dream to him. It says, O Belteshazzar, king of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretations. And, and he's telling a, a story of, you know, this idea of, of a tree that's chopped down and a, and a man that's turned into beast and those types of things. And he's warning, God's warning Nebuchadnezzar about his pride. And even though he says all these great things about Daniel, he doesn't, he doesn't listen. In verse 19, when Daniel hears all of this, he says he's appalled. For a while, as his thoughts alarmed him, and the king responded, says, Do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you, and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful, and its ab fruit abundant, and uh, in which food was for all under theirs, on and on, verse 22, it's you. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Go down to verse 26. And it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, my advice may be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prophecies. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't learn from the golden statue. He's all puffed up with pride and God speaks to him during this special time with visions and dreams. And it's warning him that he will be punished for his pride and for his sin. And Daniel says, repent. Verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty. If you learn anything about Daniel, it's about God's sovereignty over the nations. Who put Nebuchadnezzar in place? Who raised Nebuchadnezzar up? Who raised Babylon to the height of the power that it was? God did. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Verse 34, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is everlasting and his kingdom endure, endures to generation. Verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise 
exalt and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar had it all and God showed him, you are nothing to me. And he made him a crazy man. And when God was ready, God rescued him. He saved him. He redeemed him. And Nebuchadnezzar has nothing and no one to boast in except God alone. So if salvation is not a boast of man, clearly man has no part in his salvation. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, we see the fourth truth. Salvation is the starting point for good works. Salvation is the starting point for good works. So notice so far, we've talked about grace, we've talked about faith, we've talked about not boasting, we've talked about it being a gift. We haven't really talked about the work part. Here's where the work part comes in. For we are his workmanship. He's talking about those at the church at Ephesus who are true believers. True believer, all right, you were dead, but God raised you up and made you alive together with Christ so that now you are currently his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that word created again is the passive you didn't create yourself. You're not a self-made Christian. God made you a Christian. He made you a new creation. And you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, apart from Christ, Isaiah 64, 6 and 7 was true of us. All of us have become unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Before Christ, even the good things we did were so tainted with impure motive and with our own selfishness that they were filthy rags before God. Then all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of of our iniquities. Isaiah says, God, I've got nothing. I've got, I got nothing good to give you. And I'm stuck, powerless, dead in my sin. But when God calls and draws and saves and redeems you, you die to old self, you are raised together with Christ, and you, now you are his workmanship. You are his workmanship. You are his instrument. You are his tool to do his work, to do his bidding. You are now his slave. The idea that you can be a Christian and not exhibit the works that God has called you to is contrary to the Bible. There are six things in conclusion I want us to walk through. And we're going to answer this question, why is this so important for Paul to define the relationship? Why does he need to do that here? Number one, it gives God the credit he is due. It gives God the credit 
that he is due. We already looked at verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We already saw in verse 17 that he is the Father of glory. Paul wants them to be comforted and to be challenged by their position in Christ and he wants them to give God the glory that he is due, the credit that he is due. Number two, it teaches the right path to salvation. It teaches the right path to salvation. You know John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Why? Why is it only Jesus? He is the only one that provides the righteousness that is necessary. Holy God demands holy perfection. And we ain't got it. But Jesus does. And he wants to give it to us. But we have to believe in him. Teaches us the right path of salvation. Number three, it gives hope to the hopeless. Gives hope to the hopeless. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no not one. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And then it goes to Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Hey, look, I want you to know that none of you seek after God and all of you are dead in your sins. But the free gift that God gives to you is eternal life. And in that eternal life, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Whew. Number four. It assures believers of their salvation. How does that, I mean, how, how does that work? It assures me of my salvation because I'm, I, you have doubts, right? Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? There's been teachings throughout the years and generations that you could lose your salvation somehow. Look, I did not earn it. So I can't lose it, right? It was a gift given to me by God Almighty and now I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He holds me in his hand. Christ holds me in his hand. I didn't earn it. It was a gift that God gave to me. So I can't lose it. And I don't need to add to it. It assures believers of their salvation. Number five. It leaves no room for easy believism. No room. And, and by say, I don't know if that's like still a cool phrase with the kids these days, like cap and stuff like that. But the idea that you can just, oh, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus, but there's no changed life. Maybe you, you said a prayer when you were younger because you were scared of hell, but there's been no change in your life. Right? The idea that you can be a good tree but you produce bad fruit is foreign to Scripture. But there are lots of people out there that, that excuse and cover and sweep away their hard-hearted sin because they go to a church. Because they live in a city that's a Christian city in a Christian environment. That's the idea of easy believism. Because we know that you are saved by grace through faith. Oh, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus. 
I went to a, a discipleship now or whatever it is. I went to some event and sure, yeah, I, I, I asked Jesus into my heart. If you really have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what are you now? His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you will do them. But lastly, it motivates us to serve him. Unbeliever, you can't earn your salvation. But you know what's awesome? You don't have to. You don't have to. Just believe in Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus. He'll forgive you. But believer, don't play with the blood. Take your new life in Christ seriously. You are made. You are created to do not what you want when you want, but to do the work that he has given to you to do. Let's do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful passage of Scripture. So many reminders, so many truths to learn from. And we are so thankful that your word is abundantly clear, that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not a result of works, simply because you are good and generous. But it is only to those who truly repent and believe in your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We praise you that for those of us that are in you, that we are now your workmanship. And may we work for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen.